Welcome to Lighthouse Church's Sermon Podcast. We pray you are blessed and encouraged with today's message. Y'all ready? So anyway, I'm in the midst of the series. I've got a couple more weeks this week and next week, and then I'm done, and then I'm starting a new series. I'm going to see how that goes because then we have Easter. How many people realize Easter's here, right? It's crazy, right? I was telling my wife, we're going to have to start going Christmas shopping here soon, so... I'm in this series right now called The Twelve, talking about the Twelve Disciples. Today I'm going to talk about Matthew, James, and Thaddeus. What I'm doing is um, talking about how the disciples' lives and their personalities and their occupations and things like that compare to ours, how it speaks to us today. Um, Talking about how they impact on each one of us, because I believe that Jesus chose the Twelve Disciples not haphazardly. He actually picked them for a reason, and that it's supposed to bring us comfort to let us know, no matter how screwed up we are, God still will use us. Come on, somebody. You know what I'm talking about, right? So the series is about reassuring you and encouraging you that you can, come on, that God can use anyone, no matter your background, situation, or circumstances. So the first one I'm going to deal with this morning is Thaddeus. If you'd hit those middle lights, that'd be awesome, Nate. So Thaddeus, Thaddeus. Now listen, Thaddeus, here we go. Ready? I'm going to get some information. You know, I've been giving you a lot of information. It's not necessarily what I normally do, but I'm going to give you a lot of information. It was a disciple that was known by three different names. His first name, uh, or the first name that was listed, or one of the names listed is Judas. Another one was named Thaddeus, and the other one was Labaius. Now, the interesting thing about Judas is many times you'll see, even the book of John will say, Judas, not Iscariot. <laughs> so he wanted to make sure he differentiated them between the other ones because he didn't want him to get a bad rep, Right? So I'm going to give you this right here, the different scriptures that are used to explain it. So it says, both in the Gospels of Matthew and Mark, the apostle is listed as Thaddeus. And there's the references. In the King James Version of Matthew, he is called Labaius. In Luke, however, he replaces the name Thaddeus with Judas, son of James, in both Luke 6 and Acts 1. And when the apostle John mentions Thaddeus, he calls him Judas, and then again, jokingly, I say jokingly, not a scary. You don't want to be identified with Judas Iscariot, amen? So, again, he had three different names, and it was very, very popular in that time to have several different names, right? Simon, Peter, I've talked about them, you know, the different names that each one of these people had. So it was common that they would have a, a, a different name depending on the circumstances, depending on the language. And quite frankly, sometimes, and I'm going to talk about it this morning, Two of these names were nicknames, and I'm going to break them down for you, which kind of gives a little bit of definition of what I believe he was like. So in uh, Jude, the Judas, the word Judas actually is a derivative from the word Judah. And if you know anything about Israel history, history, there was 12 tribes, right? And one of the tribes was Judah, which means praise. And so I believe that he probably, his family came from that tribe, from that group of people. So it's a derivative of that, of that name. Now, I'm going to show you another picture here. This is the cool thing. Ready? Judas was probably the name given to Thaddeus at birth. So his real name was Judas. Okay? Well, Labaius and Thaddeus were nicknames. Now, look what the nicknames mean. And you can probably figure out where this is going. Labaius translates as heart child. Thaddeus means breast child. Why do I? I feel, I swear sometimes I think the only thing, I think the Bible's funny, and you guys just kind of look at it like it's just not funny. That's funny. Who names, who nicknames somebody a breast child? It's ridiculous, right? Now, I, I, want, I want to go on with this. Now, I want to suggest to you that the, if these were deed nicknames, which I believe they are, that's what historians say, and that's what even theologians say, 
People get nicknames for a reason. Did anybody ever have a nickname growing up? Right? I, I was, I, in my class, anybody ever have those classes where you voted for different categories of people, like, you know, most eligible, or not most eligible, they didn't do that in high school, sorry. <laughs> most likely to succeed. <laughs> Should have been everybody that's eligible. I mean, sorry. Right? I was class clown. Can you imagine that? I was class clown. That is offensive. I thought I was going to get most best looking. Amen, pastor. This is when you encourage your pastor. See, i got to teach you how to do this. You know, best dressed. Come on, something like that. Wearing my Sperry's this morning. Come on. That brings me about 10% up, okay? Here, come on. But everybody had nicknames, and it was based on, you know, maybe what you did or what you looked like or just whatever. We have a nickname for somebody in this church called Tater. His name is not Tater. It's Liston, but everybody knows him. I'm in my phone, it's Tater. So when someone calls me, like Liston calls me, I have no idea who that is. But I know Tater, right? So we have these nicknames. So listen, the nicknames heart child and breast child lends to the fact that he was probably very young, even younger than John, because most people say that maybe John was the youngest disciple, because how do we know that? He lived the longest. He lived into, you know, his 90s. Anyway, so the suggestion is made that he was probably equal to John or even maybe younger. And what happens when young people are in the midst of older people, when you work side by side? Invariably, older people pick on the younger people, and then what happened? The younger people give it right back. So I would venture to say probably he was pretty accepted in his group, and he was fun-loving. I remember when I first started working at ShopVac, I was by, by far, like literally 40 years younger than everybody else that worked around me, and they loved picking on me. They, I mean, some of those ladies, man, they were sweet ladies. In case you're watching, love you all. But they would pick, and they'd give me nicknames and everything else. But I'm saying uh, that kind of environment you can see going on. And people, sometimes we look at the disciples, and we think they're through these holier and holy men, and they're just everything was perfect. No, they lived just like we did. Did you know that? Did you know that? They went and ate. They hang, hung out. They probably played ball. They probably did all kinds of different things. They weren't ministering 24 hours a day, seven days a week. And so they would you know, ride each other and rib each other, and he probably got these nicknames from these people saying, oh, man, you're still on the breast. You're a youngster. You don't know anything. Shut your mouth. You know, that kind of thing, the ribbing that would go on. So I'm sure he was well accepted and probably fun-loving, and they loved to pick on him. And I'm sure, as any young people know, you guys give it right back. I mean, yeah, yeah, right? That's how it works. So the only recorded words of Thaddeus are found in John 14, okay? It's the only time. The 12 disciples were gathered together in the upper room for the Last Supper. This is right before Jesus is about ready to die on the cross. There's no other recorded words in the Gospels of Thaddeus except for this line. They're having the Last Supper. Jesus is explaining to them, I'm speaking to them what's about ready to happen. Can you imagine the tension in the room? It must have been a lot of, I mean, just a lot of anxiety. Come on. Because he's saying things that they were not comfortable with. I'm going to die. I'm going to leave you. Once I leave you, the Holy Spirit's going to come. And they're like, what is the Holy Spirit? I don't understand. We're having, hey, Jesus, we're having a really good run here. Why do you need to leave? I'm sure those questions were going on. And so this, this whole aspect in this, in this whole um, environment of confusion and probably fear and a little bit of, you know, like just what is going on? What is happening? Uh, they had, the apostles had questions. And if you read this whole account, you'll see three of them actually ask questions. And the last one to ask was uh, Thaddeus, who says, Lord, why are you not going to reveal yourself to us, only to us, and not to the world at large? So Jesus is saying all this stuff, 
And he's saying, listen, why are, why are you just going to reveal yourself to me, to us, and not to the entire world? Now, I believe this reveals a couple things, and I want to have fun with this a little bit this morning. But I believe, again, we're taking statements in Scripture, and we're taking um, historical facts about them. We're trying to paint a picture of what they were like. And so, again, I, I've said this already, but when they named people in the Old Testament, or in the New Testament, and even in the Old Testament, they named them for a reason. They just didn't throw a name because it sounded good. Well, I'm going to name my you know, my son, Tom Cruise, whatever, because I love Tom Cruise. They didn't do that. They named them according to what they felt like the Bible was telling them to name them. So the names, you can look at them and realize there was importance and there was something about their names that meant something. And again, even in these other statements, when they made a statement, when someone was asking, asking a question, you can sometimes reveal where their heart is. So the first thing I want to say is, um, I believe this. Out of this statement, I believe it reveals the first thing, he had a good heart. Why do I say this? Because he wasn't selfish with Jesus. Now, we would have recognized if he was selfish because he would have said something like this. Jesus, you're revealing yourself to us. That is enough. You don't need to reveal it to anybody else. But his first question is, is like, why don't you reveal it to everyone? Because he has experienced the goodness of God for three and a half years. And so all of a sudden he's like, you know, you're going to leave. Well, why don't, you, why don't you show yourself to everybody? Why don't you just show your, even before you're dead, show yourself to everybody. So he had a good heart. He wasn't selfish. I believe the second point is this. The second point is he was beginning to grasp the message Jesus was teaching. Now, this is important because I want to tell you, don't ever feel bad about your walk with the Lord. Because even after three and a half years of spending time with him, the disciples were still knuckleheads. No, isn't that true? Sometimes you just don't get it, right? And so what happened is that Jesus, they were beginning to understand, they were beginning to understand the message. And so he was understanding that this, this blessing, this thing called Jesus, this movement that Jesus was uh, establishing here on earth wasn't just for them. It was for more people. So the message was starting to break through. One of my best stories in scripture is when he's talking about beware of the Pharisees, Leaven. Remember he says that? Beware of the leaven of the Pharisees. And they turn around and look at each other, and what do they say? They say this. They're like, uh, maybe he's mad at us because we forgot to bring bread. Man, that is us. We sometimes just don't get what he's saying. But this shows that he was starting to understand and grasp the message that Jesus did not come just for them. He came to save the world and that the message needed to get out there. And lastly, you know, because it's freely I receive, freely give. And lastly, and this is me maybe stretching it a little bit, but I love this because, again, take into account, he's young, take into account that obviously he was given a couple nicknames because he probably ribbed people and they had this little discussion going on. I believe he probably was a little bit, I'm going to say this, I think Thaddeus had some youthful energy. Now, I'm going to explain what youthful energy is. It's a polite way of saying that he was a know-it-all a little bit, okay? What I mean is this, Jesus... Why don't you just show up and prove yourself to those unbelievers? Now, have you ever felt that way? I know you, I have. Have you ever felt that way where you're, you're seeing somebody that doesn't believe and you know, Jesus, I just wish you'd show right up in the middle of Washington, D.C. and put them in their place. You know, Jesus, I wish you'd just stand right in front of the Speaker of the House and go, here I am, come on, right? You'd love that, right? That's what he was saying. Come on, Jesus, why don't you show yourself to everybody, all this persecution and this ripping that they've been telling us and all this threats they've been giving us, prove it. See, that's not how God works. That's not how Jesus works. You remember on the cross, even the, the guard said, why don't you come down off of that cross? And Jesus' response is really, the response in the story was, I could call down legions of angels right now and save me. I could come right now and destroy everything if I wanted, but that's not the plans of God. 
And so what Jesus had to reiterate and tell him is, listen, blessed are those that see me, right? But even more blessed are those that believe in me when they don't see me, and that's us. And so this walk is a walk of faith. And so I can picture like Thaddeus, this young guy. I mean, you ever been in a, in, a, in a group of people and there's always the young guy in the room and he always has these great energetic ideas. Like, I got a great church function. Let's go paraglide off the side of a 10,000-foot cliff. Right? Let's go jump off that four-story you know, bridge into that 10-foot water. And all the kids are like, let's do it. Let's go. And all the older people are like, this is how I know you're getting older. You consider doing what you do before you do it. No, that's the truth. Because your friends say, jump off that bridge. Okay. Ramp that. <laughs> I love this. Ramp that bike. You know, we're going to make a homemade ramp. How many people know homemade ramps never work? They're not going to work. They're going to get destroyed, and you're going to get hurt, and you're going to get, right? I remember when I was a kid, I was riding down this pretty hill up on Ellington Mountain, pretty steep hill, and my brother said to me, he goes, I bet you can't drive that bike with your feet, steer it with your feet. Now, if someone said that to me today, I'd be like, you're right. Wisdom and knowledge and a lot of pain and hurt and wrecks have taught me, right? So I tried. Guess what happened? Within two seconds, my wheel went like this. I went up like this, landed on my head, blacked out, got up was a mess for like a week. It was worth it, right? No, it wasn't. But you can see Thaddeus saying, you know what? I think we should have these lights and we should, we should you know, have this huge party, invite all these officials and all the Pharisees and all the people that have been ripping on us. I think we should have a party and bring them in and then you show up and then the angels appear. That'll show them. And Jesus is like, no, that's not the way I work. We walk by faith, not by sight. So I believe that's a little bit of Thaddeus. So how many times as a youngster you wanted to prove your strength and ability? Jesus, just appear and everyone that are there that will see you will believe. Now, how many people know as you are young, some of the decisions they have. This is the beautiful thing about church. Catch this. It's important. We don't want to squash youthful exuberance and youthful zeal. What we have to do is try to figure out a way to channel it. I mean, I... I <laughs> I thought many times how much my father-in-law, I, I honestly believe the reason why God teamed me up with my father-in-law, my wife's father, is because he was so calm and chill. And of course, I am too, so we really fit together well. I would come to him weekly with a new idea. You know, I've been really thinking. I, I've been thinking we need to like knock all the windows out, push that wall right up to the street. That's nice, Sean. That's a good idea. Oh, come on, you know what I'm talking about. You know, next week I'd come up and say, you know, I was thinking maybe we should just blow out this and just, I mean, always had a new exuberant idea, another way we're going to take the world. I think we need to go up here and do this. I need, and every time he'd just smile at me and go, wow, that's a good idea. You know, it's important that you don't squash youthful exuberance, but you kind of channel it. I remember one time when I was first getting into some of the things of the Spirit, and God was, you know, moving powerfully, and we were seeing some really cool things happen, and I was kind of new to it. And, of course, you know, me, I'm not very emotional, right? <laughs> Woo, come on. Combine me with the Holy Ghost, you're in trouble. And a cup of coffee. You see last week, holy cow, race that from the annals. That was my mom's fault. She gave me a coffee this big. Anyway, <laughs> but I remember I was so exuberant. I'm like, you know, I, I've told a story where, did I ever tell you this story? You guys are going to like this. I'm just talking to you. So me and two friends of mine got in the car and we're driving around and we're praying. And it was probably, it was probably good prayer in the sense that no prayer is bad, but it was definitely flesh prayer. 
where we're just working ourselves up in a lather. You know what I'm talking about? Like just, come on, Lord, we know you could do it. Come on, Lord. It was like we were going to play a football game. I could have tore someone up. I probably would have beat you in wrestling. That's how crazy it was. That's not true. But but I was absolutely like in a lather. And I think I've told the story before. And so we looked for prey. You know what I'm talking what do you mean, being led by the Holy Spirit? What's that? No, I was looking for prey. Like, it was, it was my flesh. And I remember, I, we were driving around, and all of a sudden, we were coming up the street, and, and there was these three kids from Troy. I still, to this day, don't know who they are. I'm embarrassed even if I ever saw them. I'm glad I don't know. They get out of their car, and we, all three of us, pull up and go, yes, here's our opportunity. So ridiculous. There was a kid <laughs> with, a, with a crutch, and he was like this, you know, was walking with a crutch. I'm like, he's mine. I'm being honest with you, man. Come on, this is youthful exuberance. I ran over him, went over him and was like, do you want prayer? He goes, no. I've never seen a guy with a crutch run so fast in my life, get into the, to the store, want another. All, all three of them just ran from us, and we're like, what, what's going on? And God was like, chill out, youthful exuberance. Let me calm you down. Like, and so we don't want to quench that, but we do want to channel it, right? I, I guarantee I tortured your husband so much, so much, just like I tortured my wife now. So, so Thaddeus was a fun-loving young, fun young adult who had a big heart. He wanted to see others experience the blessing he had received, uh, and God used him. He was maybe a little over the top in his exuberance, but God still used him. Amen? The next one I want to talk about, and I'm going to run through these because get these done, is James Son of Alphaeus. James, son of Alphaeus. Okay. James is only mentioned four times, and in those four times, it's only found in the lists of the disciples. So right away, you should be seeing, as we're almost done with these disciples, some of them got mentioned a lot, like Peter and John. Got mentioned a ton. And then there was other disciples that barely got mentioned at all. But yet they were all part of the group. Okay? So you can see those scriptures if you want to write them down. Look at the video afterwards to see them. There are three names for John in this scripture, and I'm going to go through those in a second. But he's differentiated from the other, other James that are found in scripture due to being the tagline, James, son of Alphaeus. That made him different than the others. Here's what we can say about James, son of Alphaeus. He was known as James, you probably have heard of this, called James the Lesser or James the Obscure. So what they were saying is that he was uh, not mentioned as much. So you have, you know, John and James. Remember, they were brothers. You heard a lot more about him. You know about James, the brother of Jesus, who most people believe wrote the book of James. This guy wasn't much known at all. So he was called James the Lesser. Some scholars believe, now this is, this is all tradition. There's no Bible to prove this, but some scholars believe that he was actually the brother of Matthew because Matthew's father was named Alphaeus. So some have concluded they're, they're the brothers. The only issue with that is whenever they mentioned the disciples as brothers, they would put them as brothers, right? They'd put Peter and Andrew, brothers of, right? James, John, brothers of. They don't do that here, even though they had the, both the same father. So I'm, I'm, I tend to lead that they're probably not brothers because I believe the Scripture would be pretty clear if it was. Others, using Mark 1540, along with early church writings, say that James had a mother named Mary of Clopas. So if you read Mark 15, 40, it talks about the people at the crucifixion of Jesus, and there was three Marys that were present. Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of Jesus, and this woman called Mary Clopas, or however you want to pronounce it. Some tradition, and when I go, say, tradition, back to even the first, second, third century, some writings that were done by historians back there stated that this woman was actually um, the sister of Mary. 
the mother of Jesus. So if tradition is correct, which again, it's not biblical, he would be a cousin to Jesus. Again, up to you whether you believe it or not. Again, not so much as anything known truly about James, but I want to say this, and I'm closing with the James thing, and then I'm getting into Matthew. Catch this. You need to get this. In and of itself, catch this, even of it, in and of itself, the fact that not much is known about James the Lesser is a message in and of itself. And I want to tell you that this morning. James, 99% of the body of Christ will never be known outside of their own body. 99% of the people here will not be known other than by the people here or maybe the people in your town. So we should find encouragement in our obscurity because God still knows. Amen? Our callings are just as sure, just as God-honoring, but few will ever know our names here on earth. There's no billboards with our faces on them. There's no newspaper articles talking about us or headlines praising our work. Some labor for decades in remote regions of the world. I think about those missionaries over there that maybe see very little fruit, and we don't even know who they are, but they tarry, and then they live their life, and then they die, and there's no big parades when they pass away. Come on. How about the Sunday school teachers? We've had Sunday school teachers, I think of Mary Bailey, that taught here for years, years. Her, her husband just passed away. She's still living. But I, I wonder, you know, there's no big parades. Think of Debbie, you know, Mays, who taught here. The kids love the kids, love my kids growing up for years. She passed away this past year. There's no parades. There was no big articles in the newspaper talking about all the great things she did. But I'm telling you, she had an impact on my kids. And I think sometimes... We focus so much on our names here on earth that we forget that what matters is what it says in heaven about us. And so I say, even though James called, I, mean, I think about that again. I told you about Thomas last week, how unfair that was to be called Doubting Thomas. I think this is unfair to him to be called, be called James the Lesser, the lesser of the two. What does that even mean? In heaven, he's known and he's equal with James the Greater. And I think we have to understand that with our lives, what counts is what God says. I want to say this because you need to hear this, is that this is, this is literally what God wants. James, the son of Alphaeus, reminds us that God uses a different set of standards to choose his servants, right? And this is what he requires of us. Faithfulness, endurance, obedience, and sacrifice. Our only responsibility is to obey, and what does God? God determines the results. God determined. That doesn't mean that we don't strive for greatness. It doesn't mean that we don't strive for excellence. It doesn't mean that we don't strive to impact people. But at the end of our days, what we did for God better be what he called us to do. And whether our name becomes big or not, it doesn't matter. What matters is in heaven what is said. Amen? Church, amen? Amen. Last one. I'm going to close with this guy. Matthew. Matthew. How many people know what Matthew's occupation was? Tax collector. Hey. He's traditionally believed to be the author of the book of Matthew. Now, you say, well, that's obvious. No, it never mentions his name. But there's enough indication there to most scholars and, and historians and theologians believe Matthew wrote the book of Matthew, even though it doesn't say who the author is. Matthew's gospel is the longest of the four, and some scholars believe it was the first to be written. And in case you didn't know this, um, I didn't know this several years ago, and I remember learning this. Only two of the four Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, only two of them are written by people that saw Jesus firsthand. I remember when I first learned about the Bible, I just thought the, the four Gospels were all disciples. And then I started realizing, well, no, that name isn't in the list. 
And I realized only two out of the four Gospels were firsthand accounts. The other two were written by people that heard stories about Jesus and then wrote them down. Matthew, disciple. Mark, no. Luke, no. John, yes. Right? The interesting thing you find in that is that's why Matthew's gospel and John's gospel are so different. If you compare Matthew's gospel and John's gospel, they're very, very different. John wrote from a different... And see, sometimes people read those and they say, well, that's proof that it's not true. Can I be honest with you? If every one of the gospels were exactly right, you know what I'd call that? That's forgery. If somebody came running through this church right now, ran out the back door, and I'd say, what did they wear? Every one of us would probably notice a little slightly different thing about that person that another person would know. It's called a change of perspective. So even though the Holy Spirit inspired the Scriptures, he still used them to tell their side and what they sensed. So Matthew's you know, description of God came through his lens, through Jesus, you know, of Jesus came through his lens. John's was through his perspective. And that's what I love it. Now, that also makes, catch this, makes why Mark and Luke are very similar to Matthew's because if Matthew's was the first written, then whose would probably be copied in the stories that would have been told by then? There you go. So there's reasons for the way that it looks, okay? There are just seven mentions of Matthew in the entire New Testament. His occupation, as most of you already knew, and you know you could put the scriptures up if you want to, or you guys can look it up yourself and say he was a tax collector in the town of Capernaum. You know that um, I mentioned when I was talking about uh, Peter that that was the center where all the Silk Road and the trade routes came through so that there was huge amounts of taxes that were brought through Capernaum. So that town was exceedingly wealthy, and him in particular, he was probably by far the wealthiest of all the disciples because he got a tax on everything that came through that place, through that valley of Jezreel. So it was very, a very, very powerful, very, 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 very wealthy, wealthy man. He was contracted by the Roman government to collect taxes. But also, guess what this did? It made him very unpopular with his own people. Why did it make him very unpopular? Because what would happen is they would collect taxes from his own people, the Jews, because the Romans were ruling. The Jews were under the Romans, and so they would collect taxes like they do in America today. And what would happen is that Matthew, on his own, because they wouldn't check, he had total control. He could collect extra taxes for himself. So he was being literally ruling with the Romans over Israel oppressing them by taking more money from them. How many people know if you knew that was going on, you would not like that person very much, especially if he was supposedly one of your own. So it wasn't a very popular position. In saying that, because he um, was that, he had very, I guarantee he had very few Jewish friends. If he had any friends at all, it was the high level people, right? Because he placed money above everything and everyone else, this would have brought him and his family great shame. Now, catch this. He was a tax collector. Now, I don't know if it ran in his family. I can't tell you that. But if it didn't run in his family, I want to tell you right now, I guarantee his mom and his dad and even his siblings were probably in great shame knowing that their son was a tax collector doing this to people, oppressing them. Because you've got to understand, oppression at that time, taxes at that time were not like they are today. We're talking serious amounts of taxes. I mean, it was serious amounts what happened at that day and age. And so he would have felt very isolated from the rest of his people. He would have been very lonely. Guarantee he'd been very lonely. But what he did, he, he has put money in front of all his relationships. He goes, this is more important to me than anything else. Okay? This is important that you get this. Tax collectors were grouped with very sinful people. So Matthew 9, you can look it up yourself. If you were a tax collector, you were all automatically grouped with sinful people. If you even hung out with a tax collector, that would tarnish your reputation. 
Now, I don't know about you. I'm not sure what profession today would do that to you. But back then, if you had someone over to your house that was a tax collector, it would bring shame upon the entire home, and people would look at you differently. Now, I, I, I don't even know. Maybe a prostitute? I, don't, I, I couldn't even tell you. There's probably, I don't know. Maybe, I don't know. Some of the sell, I don't know. Sells drugs? I have no idea. I don't know what it would be like. But it's hanging out with a person that would absolutely cause you to be judged as well as the other people. And I love this. Who ate with them? Jesus. And so what happens, this is beautiful. Jesus was having dinner at Matthew's house with many other tax collectors and sinners present. Uh, present, and the Pharisees questioned the disciples about Jesus' choice of companions. I love that scripture. And his response is this, I did not come for those who are healthy. I came for those who are sick. I've said one of the problems in the church today, can somebody give me an amen, is this. One of the problems we have in the church today is that religious people like hanging out with us a lot more than sinners. And it's exactly opposite during, than when in Jesus' time. In Jesus' time, the sinners loved Jesus. They were around him all the time. They were being impacted by him all the time. They were being saved by him all the time. They were being healed and delivered all the time. And the religious cast stones at him. Today, the religious people love us, and the sinners are afraid to come through our doors. Something is wrong. We need to change that. It doesn't mean we become sinful because we know Jesus did not sin. It means that we change our perspective on them. I've heard people say they come into church and they don't like coming to church because when they come to church, they feel like they're being judged. Come on, people. we got to change that. How many people all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God? There's nobody here. Come on. You remember when that lady... Um, was caught in the midst of adultery. Remember that story? What I love about that is they brought her in the midst of adultery. Catch this. Where's the man? At that time, men obviously weren't held to the same standard. Now, I'm going to say something that might be a little graphic for you, but you need to understand the story. If she was caught in the midst of adultery, there's a very good chance she was naked when she was dragged in front of all those people. So here she is in her shame, in her shame. And I love it. It says Jesus kind of put his eyes. I believe part of the reason he did that, I don't know what he wrote, but part of the reason he did that, because he didn't want to look at her. He didn't want her to feel uncomfortable. Anybody know what I'm talking about when your shame is revealed? You know what I'm talking about. So in her shame, this, this is where she's at. And what he says is profound for the church today. He goes, whoever is without sin, cast the first stone. Because they wanted to stone her. Because Jewish law, the Old Testament said that if somebody does this, they can stone her. They can stone them. And so they wanted the stone, and they wanted Jesus' approval to do it. And he goes, whoever out there with a stone, because they all had their stones in their hand, they're ready to kill her. And whoever out there is without sin, you know, toss the stone. And it says, the oldest left first, and then the youngest. Why did the oldest leave first? Because once you get older, you realize how messed up you really are. Come on. Once you've lived a few years, come on, once you've lived this life for a few years, you realize how wicked your heart can be, how judgmental you can be, how lustful you can be, how crazy you can be. When you're young, you think you can take on the world, right? So right away when he said that, the older people's like, well, that takes, I'm out of it. Throws a stone down, walks away. Now, that's not the end of the story. The end of the story is what? He takes her by the hand, picks her up. Church, picks her up, restores her, and then when that's all done, see, there's a process here you got to catch. He stopped the accusations. He restores her. And then says, go and sin no more. The church today is like this. Quit sinning. We don't touch. We don't stop the accusations. We don't restore. Jesus, I love how he did it. He took her by the hand. First, God got rid of all the accusations, all the people shooting darts at her, all the people judging her. And this isn't pro-sin. This is pro-grace. This is what Jesus came to do. And he picks her up, 
looks at her and says, you're restored, woman. You're a woman of God. Now go and sin no more. Can I tell you something that I think is amazing? And I want to say this about women. I'm going to pat the women on the back. All the women get a pat on the back from somebody. Go ahead. From what we know, there was only one disciple at the crucifixion, but there was a whole lot of women. Something he said about that. Matthew, as a tax collector, would have been very good or great with money. He would have been a gifted organizer and thorough administrator. His job would entail being a meticulous recording and documenting of tax information. As I told you before, some of these caravans that went through this post, through Capernaum, they would have been a 1,000 camels large. Can you imagine? And every one of their goods was taxed. So he had to go through every one of their goods and tax them. And he had to put an amount upon them. He would have been very, very intelligent, very, very gifted, would have been very, very good at documenting. That's why I believe he was one of the ones that God inspired, the Holy Spirit inspired, to write the book of Matthew because he was like a New Testament scribe. He would have been very good at writing. Also why it's the longest. Amen? Now, I want to go a couple more things and I'm going to be done. His also, as everybody else seems like in that time, had another name. His other name was Levi, right? So the Gospels of Matthew, Mark, and Luke all parallel accounts of Jesus calling a tax collector to become a disciple. But the difference with Mark and Luke is they call the guy's name Levi, not Matthew, okay? So they're given the same story, but they're different, You see him here. As Jesus went on from there, he saw a man named Matthew sitting at the tax collector booth. Follow me, he told him, and Matthew got up and followed him. Mark 2, as he walked along, he saw Levi, son of Alphaeus, sitting at the tax collector's booth. Follow me, Jesus told him, and Levi got up and followed him. Luke's account. After this, Jesus went out and saw a tax collector by the name of Levi sitting at the tax booth. Follow me, Jesus said to him, and Levi got up, left left everything, and followed him. So most scholars... 99% 99% sure that this was this one in the same person, one in the same person. So it matches, you know, chronologically in language, they believe it's the same thing. Matthew had great wealth. I'm not going to get into this too much, but obviously I told you he's very, very wealthy. He had this great banquet for Jesus with a large crowd of attendants, by far the wealthiest. Today he would have been known as probably, seriously, someone like um, probably worth, million or more. He would have been very, 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 very wealthy. Now, I'm going to show you a couple facts that I find very interesting as I close this, okay? When he was called, he left everything, left his tax collection booth, which it says, and followed Jesus. Now, guess what? The gospel of Matthew talks about money much more than the other gospels. Hmm. Listen how much. Ready? Gold and silver are only mentioned once in Mark, four times in Luke, but 28 times in Matthew. Does it now make sense? He was a tax collector. He, through his lens, which was finances, is how he saw God, how he worked, how he understood. The famous parable of the talents, remember the talents, is only found in Matthew 25. The other two heard it because if you read the Gospels, it says, John, I believe, the Gospel of John says, if we recorded everything that Jesus said and did, it would fill the whole earth. They didn't record every story. They couldn't. It was impossible. He did do many things for three and a half years. So they picked and cho- you know, chose which stories they wanted to put in there inspired by the Holy Spirit. Now you understand why Matthew probably recorded that because it was about money, about taking what God gives you and multiplying it. It makes a lot of sense. You begin to see this makes a lot of sense. Now this is an interesting. I, I found this very, very interesting. The Lord's Prayer. In Luke it says, forgive us our sins. We forgive those who sins against us. Guess how Matt- Matthew says it. 
Isn't that interesting? So again, Luke's like, forgive us our sins. But when Matthew recounts it, he says debts and debtors. Why? Because that's how he understood it. It's through the lens of how he saw God. How many people have ever seen this before, didn't know this? How many people never knew this before? I want to tell you in this closing part, it's probably the most powerful thing I've found so far in researching all the disciples. I never knew this until in researching that I found this. Do you remember the beginning of Matthew's chapter 1? What does it start with? I'm going to see if anybody knows. It's very boring. It's the genealogy. It's the genealogy. Remember the genealogy? And it's broken down in 14 generations, 14 generations, and it comes all the way down through, right, to Jesus, Joseph. Now catch this. In that day and age, how many people recognize that the Bible is kind of slanted towards men, right? It, it, I mean, it really is. Sorry, ladies, it was. But in that, in that tradition, in that generation, in that culture, men were everything. Women just weren't thought of that much. And you can see throughout the Scripture where Paul and others would try to elevate them. Some of you are like, the Scriptures are so sexist. No, they're not. They're actually trying to go counter culture. You don't understand. If you lived in that time, you'd be blown away by how radical the Bible was when it came to women and mentioning them as prophetesses and stuff like that. Women were just supposed to keep their mouths quiet. I don't believe in that. I like strong women. I, I'm married to a strong woman. I think women today have to be strong. Come on, somebody. We need women that, that are strong in the church. I, I believe that wholeheartedly. In saying that, at that time, it was all about the men. So when you did, you got to catch this. This is important. So when you did genealogies, so you would read that genealogy and not think much about it. You honestly, how many people have ever just skipped over it saying, I've already read that, not going to read it again. You're missing priceless jewels, and I want to tell you why. Because men were where the genealogy always came down, right? Do you remember? Abraham, Moses, Jacob. It's always the men. It was never the women. It was always the men. You know, Noah, David, Solomon. Always the men, always mentioning the men, always mentioning where they came through the men, right? But if you look at this genealogy, that's not what Matthew did. Now, most of you don't realize this. You might have seen some of these names and thought, wow, that's weird, but you never understood it in the, in the concept or, 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 the, or the viewpoint of that, that age. This would have been very, very controversial to write because you were elevating women where it was supposed to be a man. Catch this. These are some of the women that are men mentioned in the genealogy, and this is their background. This is going to blow you away. Ready? If you're going to introduce the Messiah, you're going to introduce them through the line of the men. It's the way it went. The tribe, the, the 12 tribes of Judah, men, always men. Catch this. First one he mentions is Tamar. Tamar was Perez's mother, was Perez's mother, but was also his sister-in-law. Twisted. Read it in Genesis 38. It's a messed up story, but he stuck her in there. He did not go through the husband. He went through the mother. Catch this. Another one. How many people most know this? Rahab. What was her job? A prostitute. She was a Canaanite prostitute, someone who under the law of Moses shouldn't have even existed in the Jewish community. But he listed her. Come on, catch this. Ruth was a Moabite. A people group who wasn't allowed to worship, wasn't even allowed to worship at the Jewish temple or at church. She was an outcast, but yet he mentioned it. The worst one, this is crazy, Bathsheba, but he doesn't name her. Instead, he calls her Uriah's wife. 
Now, if you know the story, what happened? David saw her naked, bathing, went, slept with her, got her pregnant, got scared, got nervous. This is King David, the man after God's own heart. Remember King David, one of the best ever in the Bible. And what he does is he has his commander take Uriah, her husband, out to war and gets him purposely killed. He murders him. Oh, what a lineage for Jesus. But I love it because he's like, I'm not going to use her name. I'm going to say Uriah's, come on, Uriah's wife. David murdered him. One of the famous mighty men. Why? Because I believe in that day, David identified with every single one of them. You see, when Matthew walked the streets, he would have walked around with a scarlet letter. When he walked through the streets of the Jewish community, I guarantee you people spit on him, cursed him, pushed him. He was a dog to them. He was the worst of the worst. And something happened in him when Jesus came along. Now, you got to understand, this is amazing. Capernaum was the center of Jesus' ministry, which I talked to you about when I was talking about Peter. It was the center of his ministry. All the ministry came out of that area. So he would have saw Jesus and his disciples walking by once in a while. He would have been like, what is going on with this group? What's going on? I'm hearing these stories. What's going on? He would have been hearing rumbles as people were paying their taxes like, did you hear so-and-so got healed? What are you talking about? And as he walked the streets, people would throw stones at him. Uh, there's, there's rumors that they even would take manure and throw it at him. They, were, they would treat him literally like he was worse than a dog. But one day, Jesus is walking along and goes, follow me. See, we, we don't catch the impact. We're talking a multi, multi-millionaire that he has power, he has prestige, at least in his own mind. He has the biggest houses, he's got the most money, he's got authority because the Romans want him to keep doing his job and doing it well. He was educated. This guy was powerful. And yet at the words of Jesus to come follow, what did he do? It says he dropped everything, walked away from the booth, and followed him. But I want, to, I, want you, I want to close with this. He didn't carry his pompous attitude into his discipleship. He, didn't, he realized, guess what? Even though I was a tax collector, even though I had all these riches and wealth, that doesn't define who I am today. You know who I am today? I'm a sinner saved by grace. I'm a man showed mercy by the king of kings. I'm somebody that was tro- chosen out of squalor, out of lifelessness. Because you got to realize something. Even though he had all the riches in the world, there was still something inside of him that was missing that he could not fill, a void. Jesus is telling this story, and he goes, Unless you eat my flesh and drink my blood, right? And remember, it's metaphorically, it wasn't literal. And at that time, you know, obviously cannibalism was, as it is today, was really looked down. Jewish people was against, obviously, everything they believed. And so it says a bunch of disciples left him at that point. This was right before he died. Love the scripture. He turned and looked at Peter, and he goes, Peter, are you going to leave me too? You know what Peter's response was? Where else can I go? Because when you speak, your words resound in me, bring life like no other. That'll be $40. Thank you. That'll be $100. No, listen, listen. $100. $1,000. You got all this, camel? Okay, $1,000. $20,000. Well, you got $20,000 every day, every day. Wealthier, wealthier, wealthier. You're a crook. Receiving all these negative words. Something inside. I'm just not happy. I've got all the money in the world. I got anybody I want, anything I want. I got everything. Something's not right. And all of a sudden, a man came along, looked him in the face, and said, Follow me. And 
it said he immediately stood up, turned his back on everything, and followed him. Finally, the void was being filled. And then, and then, down the road, several years after Jesus died, after he was resurrected, after he had no longer had Jesus around, he's on his own being a disciple of Jesus Christ on his own with the others. The Holy Spirit says, I want you to write a book. I want you to write a description of what you saw, what you heard of my son Jesus. I want you to write something. And we now know it as the Gospel of Matthew. And as he's starting that book, he lays the foundation down of this. Sinner, sinner, redeemed. Sinner, redeemed. Prostitute, redeemed. That's me. That's you. We don't deserve it. We don't deserve it. Are you kidding me? We don't deserve it. Matthew never forgot where he came from and never forgot what Jesus did for him, what God did for him. And so the religious way would have been put all the men's name down. But he said, you know what I'm going to do? Because 2,000 years, come on, somebody, 2,000 years from now, people are going to start catching and reading this going, why, why is that? Why is a prostitute in there? Why, why is this twisted story of Tamar in there? Why is this, it doesn't make any sense. Bathsheba and that story that was horrific and a, and a stain on God's name, why was it in there? Because God's able to reach the deepest, furthest, down the darkest hole to the darkest path to the one that's furthest away from him and redeem them. And Matthew knew it personally. As he went to bed every single night sitting there going, I've got everything that a man could ever want, but I have nothing. What's wrong with me? And one day a man offered him everything. Nothing of the world, but everything spiritually that satisfied that hole and brought him eternity. And so when he wrote that book, he said, I'm going to make sure people remember that God is a God of the redeemed. Thanks for listening to today's sermon. For more information on our church, check out our Facebook page or our website, www.lighthousecanton.com. Have a great week.